welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 261, a part two of my conversation with University of Texas at Permian Basin percussion professor and current director of bands, Tim Fierst. As an aside and a look ahead, I was able to catch a lot of great music this past weekend at the annual Roots and Blues Music Festival in Columbia, Missouri, and I'll tell you more about that in this week's rave, so make sure to stay tuned for that as we return to our conversation with Tim Fierst. On part one, released last week, which I hope you've already listened to, Tim discussed his current job at UTPB, his wind band background, some of his time at North Texas, and growing up in Northern Virginia. This week on part two, Tim talks about his undergrad at George Mason University in Virginia, his master's at the University of Texas at Austin, his doctoral program at North Texas, his early teaching career, and save some time for the usual close to our show. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on August 29th, 2021, and it begins right now. And I'll go ahead and transition to college, if that's okay with you. Sure, let's do it. (laughs) So where did you go to college, Tim? Oh, okay. All right. Good. Oh, well, I'm so happy that you asked. Right. So I, yeah. went to George Mason, I went to George Mason University, and that was another case where everything kind of was fell into place for me. So my junior year, uh, the Madison High School Wind, on, Wind Symphony uh, was invited to perform at, at uh, Virginia Music Educators Association Conference. And as part of that, um, a man by the name of Anthony Maiello uh, who was the uh, orchestra director and director of instrumental studies at George Mason University at the time, came uh, and uh, clinicked the band for us. He, we would play and he would, and he would listen. And I was absolutely floored by his passion for music and everything. And I just said, I want to go to George Mason University. You know? And so I visited George Mason University. I chatted with him. I chatted with Mark Camphouse um, and then uh, the now late, uh, John Casagrande, who was the music education professor at the time. And I just said, you know, I really want to go here. And as fate would have it, in a great stroke of luck, but right around that time, John Kilkenny was hired at Mason as well. So I followed John to Mason. So I followed John to Mason and continued to continue to study with him. And then at that time, they also had uh, the beginnings of their indoor drum line. And I, you know, marched in the snare line for that for the first year of competition. And, you know, it's just another one of those cases of, you know, that was the that was the best, you know, place for me at the time. You know, I got to also do some teaching there, you know, teach some drum lines in the area. And, you know, it's really gave me a very solid foundation where I had some really fantastic teachers. Is George Mason state or private? It's state. Okay. Should I know who George Mason is? <laughs> so George Mason is, um, he was one of the founding fathers of, okay. you know, um, and he was, uh, he wrote the, uh, I think it's the Virginia Declaration of Human Rights, but it was one of the pre, it was one of the precursors to um, the Declaration of Independence. Okay. So, yeah, so it's like, you know, before Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, we had this uh, Declaration of Declaration of Rights that George Mason uh, wrote 
and everything. So that's that's who the that's who the university is named after. What was it like going to school so close to where you actually lived? It was actually fine. Um, you know, I grew up in a very in a, in a very close family. Um, I'm an only child. You know, it was a great way to save on housing costs and everything, and also meal plans and everything. I don't judge people that choose that option or everything, but it was the best. It was in hindsight, it was the best thing for me. So uh, it was about 20 minutes away. You know, I just came back, came home. Uh, my parents uh, backed off a little bit. They gave me a little bit more independence because they realized that oh, you were going to have you know classes until 10 p.m. or something. You know, you don't need to be. You're in college. You know, you're an adult. You don't need to be home at a certain time. You know, just as long as we know where you are, because that, you know, as you know, because if something happens, you go missing, we need to know where to start looking for you and everything. But they, they did a really good job of sort of, you know, back, you know, backing off and kind of, um, you know, giving me that uh, independence and everything. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was fine. It's fine. There weren't really many issues at all. What years were you there? I was there from uh, 2007 to 2011. Ah, so I did, I did the music ed degree in four years. That's so, impressive. Lots of summer classes, but it was <laughs> oh, worth it. Okay. <laughs> like you that's, actually, that's the secret. Like you actually Sorry. did, uh, you stood and taught like the second, uh, the second semester, fourth year. Yeah. Yes, I did. That's impressive. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was great. The student, student teaching experience was also really good as well. Um, I, taught elementary band, uh, let's see in, in Virginia, they have elementary band with a man named Steve Ballard, who is, um, he used to be on the uh, staff for Carolina crown and, um, also taught, you know, Colts. So he was a, he was a percussionist. Um, he's now the head band director at Thomas Jefferson high school in the area. And, you know, he and I just really got along. Well, we had the same passions for percussion and I just really wanted somebody that you know, that kind of had the same background as I did that I felt like could understand me. And then, so the way it works is you, everybody did elementary for one half and then they did either uh, like secondary, either at the middle school level or the high school level. And so I did, um, so I did middle school with uh, middle school band because I never worked in middle school at all. It was, it was always high school for me, you know, with the whole drum line and everything. Mm -hmm. And so I did, um, did middle school with uh, Judy Ines, who is a fantastic uh, band director, and also uh, Tiffany Hitz, who is uh, who is the wife of Andrew Hitz, formerly of Boston Brass, and she's all. And she now teaches at um, Rachel Carson Middle School, I think. But she's like another amazing, amazing band director, and you know, I. I'll say it a million times and I'll say it a million times more is that I really had fantastic teachers and, you know, I'm really grateful for that. What was the design of the, of the curriculum at George Mason in terms of for percussion, were they making you, were they kind of trying to get you to, to be as fluent on everything or is there any specific focuses? So the curriculum was, uh, um, at, when I was there was a classic, was a kind of, uh, classical percussion, you know, so we really focused on, uh, mallets, timpani, um, and snare drum. You know, I'd never really played four mallets before I got to my undergrad. So, um, so I really, uh, so I really worked as hard as I could to, um, to try and play, uh, you know, four mallets and everything. Uh, drum set was, uh, kind of at the time under the umbrella of the jazz department, I did do some 
uh, did do some drum set lessons, but I was mostly um, self-taught um, in terms of like for that, for that particular uh, curriculum. And then uh, there were other times, you know, like when John would program percussion ensemble concerts, he tried to do a wide variety of things. So like, for instance, a typical program would be like, uh, you know, like something, you know, a couple contemporary pieces, you know, maybe something that has a little bit more of a world percussion element to it, like a parabole by John Bergamo. Um, and then he would also try to do like some type of uh, pops thing as well, like maybe like a Zappa tune or like a Pat Metheny uh, transcription or something. But at the same time, he would also program things like uh, Mass by John Mackey or Threads or Rain Tree, you know, or what have you. So, um, you know, John wanted us and wants us, you know, wants his students to be as, you know, well-rounded as, um, as possible. You know, we, um, we also dove heavily into orchestral excerpts, you know, making sure that we could play them, play them as well as we can. Um, you know, so I did excerpts with John and then I also, uh, did my last semester before I student taught, I also studied with John Spiritus, uh, the semester, uh, who is principal percussionist at the Kennedy Center Orchestra. You know, and so I really uh, dove into a, a bunch of stuff as well. Um, one of the cool things that I learned from him was this thing called the uh, time doctor approach. So what you would do is you'd sit the, um, you'd get ready to play an excerpt. You would set the record button. You would turn on the metronome, and then you would count yourself off. Turn then turn off the metronome and start playing. Stop record, then you do the playback, and then you sync up the metronome with the metronome that's on the recording. So then that way you can tell like when you start to drag, when you start to rush, mm. you know, when you start like playing in time, it's a very, very humbling experience, but I got to tell you, man, it really made my time go like, like just really increase in everything. Yeah. It's a great. Great idea. I hadn't even considered that making me realize that you just missed when uh, George Mason made the final four. Actually, they made the, yeah, they made the final four the year before I did. Yeah. The year before I started there. Yeah. That was in 2006 yeah. when that, when that happened, we were on the band spring trip when the university of Florida knocked them out of the final four. And we were so, we were so disappointed and everything. So, yeah. but yeah, I, I remember, I remember that. And you know, that what was really cool is that um, that really also elevated the uh, pep band there, the green machine, if you will. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, some some people I know like don't really like athletics. I personally love athletics because you know, especially at a place like Texas, you know, football and band they form a symbiotic relationship. So as the football does well, and more resources are allocated to the football team, more resources get allocated to the band. So you know, working with uh, my, uh, working under Michael Nickens um, in the um, in this really amazing uh, pep band called the Green Machine. Uh, which was voted as like the best pep band, you know, in the, in the country, I think by ESPN. And, and what was really cool is that the arrangements that they would do would be so like accurate, so lore accurate to the, um, to the, like the actual tune. So for instance, they would actually like write the rage they, tune. Yeah. The, the rage, rage tune. Yeah, yeah. They made the top, yeah. They made the top page of, of Reddit and everything. Yeah. Um, even little things like, um, you know, jump by Van Halen, they would go out of their way to find, you know, the exact same sound for the, for the synthesizer and everything. And, you know, and they do it in such a, such a very like fun yet serious, yet serious way. And it's, and it's like, there's a, 
there's like a culture and there's a brand behind that. And it was, you know, although I wasn't able to be involved in it as much as I, as much as I would have liked just because of, just because of everything going on, um, because I was really focused on, on school and everything. It, it was really awesome to witness it. And rather than it was more, it was like, there wasn't necessarily about what it wasn't about what they couldn't do. It was about what they, it's about what they could do and really focusing on, you know, Oh, we want to do this, Well, let's do it then. You know, let's find, let's find a way to do it and everything. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's really a hallmark of the, not only the, you know, it's not only a hallmark brand of the, in the music area, but also the university as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. I was thinking of uh, the, the rage, um, the rage medley because you have the guy who's, who's doing the, who's doing the, um, and they do what they told you. Oh yeah. That thing. It it, it definitely adds like another level to, (laughs) to that, to that particular tune. Oh yeah. They really go out of their way to make it more accurate. If you will. Do you go right from there to UT Austin? Yes. Um, So I had always been curious about Texas because I had heard about this, amazing infrastructure that they have for music education there in terms of like, they always had, um, you know, these very big programs and everything. And I had known about that. I'd known about like Texas in general since high school. And I was kind of thinking, you know, it was around that time that, um, Austin was like at the top of the list of like best places to live and everything. And I think it still is like kind of still towards the top and everything. It's still a great place to live. So what happened was, is that I was looking at the different schools and I looked at, UT Austin. And I, and I had heard about the program. That was a school that uh, John suggested to me as well. <clears throat> so I reached out to Tom Burrett and said, I really want to take a lesson with you. And this was my, this is fall semester of my junior year. So I was starting, I was starting early because, you know, those applications are in, you know, December 1st and everything. And so I, so I played some stuff. So I came in, I played some dokus for me, for him. I played this, um, played a little bit of Capriccio Espanol. And then I played um, this piece, uh, marimba solo called Enyanga by Peter Klatzow, which is, uh, which is another one of his solos. Everybody knows Peter for, um, you know, ambient resonances and dances of earth and fire and the, and the marimba concerto. But he also has this really um, truly underrated piece called uh, Enyanga, which I encourage, you know, everybody to check out. So I, uh, so I played for it and he really, he really fixed my hands. You know, I was doing like, you know, like my thumb, you know, my thumbs inward and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a lot of strength. So he gave me like this, these warm these exercises to work on. And I worked on those every single day, you know, and all of a sudden, like, you know, my marimba playing just kept growing and growing. And then I went back to him. um, And at this time I played Minoru Miki's time for marimba Mm -hmm. uh, for him. And, you know, he saw, he saw the growth in that. And then I, you know, I applied um, and then I auditioned and I got in and, you know, and getting into UT Austin, uh, was really a dream come true for me that I was going to be able to, you know, relocate to Texas and everything, um, had a little bit of a rough start. Um, well, I wouldn't say it's a rough start, but, you know, I, you know, I was first, first semester master student and, um, during the chair placement, during the ensemble placement auditions, I made it into the second band you know, instead of the top, instead of the top ensemble, you know, and that's just because I had a bad audition and everything, you know, and that was like 
it really opened my eyes to just kind of like the, you know, what was going on here. Cause they have like this killer percussion studio and everything. And I, I really, it really showed me that I personally had a lot to learn. So, um, so I practiced, um, you know, I did lessons with Tom. I also did lessons with uh, Tony Edwards, who is the principal timpanist of the Austin symphony. And he really, um, he, what the cool thing about, about um, I'll talk about Tom's uh, teaching and then, um, and then Tony's uh, approach you know, with Tom, Tom really focuses a lot on like music and it's, uh, and it's direction and everything. I mean, you know, I don't want to speak for Tom or anything, but that was kind of the experience that I had and just like squeezing, squeezing the juice out of squeezing as much juice out of every single, you know, musical moment as you, as you could. And he really, he really pushed me a lot you know, not to say that my previous teachers didn't push me, they, they all did, but he, he really, um, you know, kind of forced me to kind of reconcile, um, you know, some deficiencies in my playing that I really needed to. And then when I took uh, lessons with Tony, Tony takes a very practical approach to everything and that, um, you know, he really takes into account the human body when, when it comes to play in terms of like, you know, relaxation and stuff in terms of like how to be relaxed and how that helps everything from like the motion of the drumsticks, you know, stuff, like, stuff like that. Like he'll give you little, little tips and like, I'll play Kiji for him. And then he'll say, play it again. Or, or actually, no, I'll, I'll use another example. So when you have in Scheherazade, like the, uh, the second lick where you have the roll and then the, and then the 16th notes, you know, mm -hmm. at the, uh, you know, at the piano that you have to be consistent. And he said, uh, do it again. But this time when you are, when you do the 16th notes, sing the pitch of the drum in your head as you play. And all of a sudden that made it a lot more consistent. So, and so it's like Tony had like these little, um, these little hacks that helped to enhance your practicing in every way. Like the way that, the way that he taught us how to learn pieces of music about how when you, first, you know, especially like a marimba solo or anything, that's what I teach my students now. And he's really an amazing, both Tom and Tony are amazing teachers. And, they really did a lot to, um, to help me kind of, you know, fine tune everything and help me, uh, grow as a, grow as a player and everything. And, you know, while I was at UT Austin, um, Adam Grow, uh, who of Western Carolina university was working on his, uh, was working on his doctorate. I'm trying to think who else was there. Uh, Chris Lysak, who was a percussion director at, um, I think it's Lyndon B. Johnson high school. And now is at Ohio Wesleyan university, uh, was there, um, you know, Alex Casimiro, who was working on his doctorate. And now he's at, uh, university of new Haven. It was two years of just unprecedented musical growth on my part. And I, I would not be the player that I am today if it weren't for, if it weren't for, um, you know, not only the amount of push that I got from Tom and Tony, but also the, um, you know, the push that I got from my fellow students when I was there as well. And of course, all this push is out of love and everything. Like we, everybody were like really supported each other there at UT. Did you have an assistantship when you were there? I did not. Um, I, which was actually all things considered was the best thing for me because I really just wanted to go. I wanted to do my classes and I just wanted to practice, 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 you know, like, and that's, that's what I did, you know, for the first time I could actually, um, I could actually, um, you know, 
uh, work on my playing and everything, you know, and not have to be worried about a whole bunch of bunch of classes right now. If you didn't have a assistantship, were you, what were you like teaching? How were you making do, you know, with being a grad student in a new town? You know, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I was fortunate enough that I had enough money saved up that I really just wanted to hone in on my craft. And um, now I fully recognize that I'm, that that's the exception to the rule. You know, we talk about regrets and stuff like that, um, you know, throughout our lives, you know, people, people think about the regrets and everything, you know, if I did have one regret, it would have been that I wish I did some private lesson teaching, you know, uh, during my master's and my doctorate outside of, outside of, um, you know, my normal college duties. But at the same time, again, talking about regrets, you know, every single decision that we make, we as humans make, we're only obligated to make the, the, the best decision possible with the circumstances and the information that we have at the time. And so, and the rest of that, you know, whether in hindsight, it turned out to be the best decision for us or not, you know, there's really, uh, there's really, we have really no uh, control over that, number one. And then number two, you know, every decision we make has its own share of pros and cons to it. So while this path had some regrets along with it, if I had done another, if I had made the opposite decision, that would also have its amount of regrets as well. That's kind of the advice that I give to people if they feel like they're riddled with regret over not doing something or you know, or like the road not taking, which is that, you know, it's, it would be the same amount of difficulty and troubles and the same amount of pros and cons. It would just be a different set of problems. You know, it will be a different set of struggles. So that's how I kind of get over, you know, just like regrets in general. I know I got kind of a little bit on a philosophical tangent, but I just feel like that's really important for people to keep in, to keep in mind. Because if we focus entirely on the regrets, we don't move forward in life. Because at some point, you have to move forward. You know, you either move forward with it or you don't. When you're doing the master's, are you – do have you already decided that you're probably not going to be a band director? I figured that was going to be the case kind of towards the end of my – towards the end of my undergrad degree. Mm. You know, I always – I respect um, – I respect band directors. I – you know, I am one now to a certain extent. Sure. Um, I just knew that like to be a public school band director was just not something that I wanted to do. And so I wanted to kind of relocate to Texas because then I kind of wanted to be like, oh, maybe I'll be a percussion director at a high school or something like that. You know, around that time, Adam Grow was, um, Adam Grow, while he was working on his doctorate, he was teaching at uh, Anna King, Texas a and Kingsville. And then um, also taught at uh, Sam Houston State University, you know, and then went to Graceland University and now Western Carolina University. And, you know, he was also uh, the studio TA while I was there. And I was just like thinking, you know, I I want to do that. So, you know, I credit Adam Grow with a large, with, uh, with um, a large, uh, largely with um, helping me to, uh, or inspiring me to go get my doctorate and everything. You know, Adam is, Adam is uh, one of my best friends and, you know, just the, um, and, you know, he's, he's helped me through, you know, stuff and helped give me advice on things like that. So I, I decided towards the end of my master's that I wanted to teach college percussion. And so I, and of course, you know, 
the only way that you can really do that nowadays with very few exceptions is to go get your doctorate. So that's what I decided to do. You go to North Texas for a doctorate. Yeah. In terms of your student work there, because we thought you mm-hmm. talked a bunch about, you know, your fellowship and, and, you know, what, what kind of that entailed, but mm-hmm. you know, how, how many of the professors that are there, did you, did you actually get to like really study with? Um, I studied with, I studied with, um, most of them with a couple, with a couple of exceptions. I mean, you're only there for so only there for so long. And then as you're there, like you find that your, pa- your passions are starting to, you know, take, take you elsewhere and everything. So, um, I studied with Mark Ford, um, uh, and Paul Rennick, uh, my first semester. And then, um, I then studied with, and then I studied with, uh, Mark Ford again and Christopher Dean, my second semester. Um, and then I started getting into drum set. Now, what was really beneficial for me at UNT was just how integrated the uh, drum set curriculum is and how and they have drum set requirements for non-jazz majors. And so I took a semester of drum set with uh, Michael Drake, um, who, is, um, who is a freelance uh, drum set player in the area. He also uh, taught at UT Arlington, I believe. And then uh, the next semester, I studied with Ed Sof study drum set with Ed Sof. And, um, you know, Ed Sof, uh, was one of the best, they all, they all were fantastic teachers. Um, you know, but some of the best teachers that I've had, Ed Sof was all as, you know, as no exception, he was one of the best teachers I had in that he really pushed me to listen and, you know, and he just his knowledge of just how to fix certain things and just like how to, you know, what to do in certain, certain situations and what not to do in certain situations, uh, was really remarkable. And, you know, they were tough lessons. They were tough lessons because, you know, I had, I had quite a, I had deficiencies in my drum set playing, but he, um, you know, but he helped me to navigate to that area, you know, and I still, I still have a lot to learn in the drum set area, but, uh, you know, I cannot tell you how many times that I found that the drum set skills that I learned at UNT, um, they've come back multiple times to help me in the long run. Um, I also studied uh, jazz vibraphone with Ed Smith uh, for a semester. And then I also studied, um, did a little bit of drum set and uh, conga lessons with uh, Jose Aponte as well. Um, so I really felt like at UNT, not only did I get, um, you know, like good teaching experience with the teaching fellowship, I also got to study with world-class performers and teachers that are at the top, that are at the top of their respective fields. You know, um, you know, Christopher Dean is an amazing, you know, timpanist and, uh, and percussionist and also the great composer. Mark Ford is, you know, one of the best, you know, best known marimba players out there and, you know, great teacher, also great composer, you know, Ed Soph, the same person that, you know, taught, you know, like, you know, Keith Carlock and, Mm-hmm. and company, you know, you got, you know, Jose Aponte, you know, Michael Drake, um, Ed Smith, you know, it doesn't really get any better than that. And so like the areas that I always wanted to find time to learn, but I never actually got the time to like things like in drum set and in world percussion, I got that at UNT, you know, so I went from a, from being kind of a classical percussionist to being a classical percussion that could play, you know, other styles of music, other genres of music 
and not fake their way through it, you know? And so, um, so that's been, uh, that, that was really helpful for me. Since you finished doctorate and you, you've had these, um, you know, you've had, you've had all these different teaching positions that have primarily been um, adjunct and they've been, you, you know, all these part-time things you've kind of pushed to get, you, like you've made, you've made it work through kind of collecting a lot of these different adjunct positions. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering the, the fact that, that it's been kind of this, this adjunct thing, you know, up until this year mm-hmm. has been a, a grind. Are you getting tired? Like, cause it, cause I mean, this is the kind of the thing that's worrisome obviously is that, you know, someone could just be, you can just be adjunct the whole time when you're not trying, when that's not the goal. Right. And, and can get okay. roped into that kind of thing because again, because you, of what you're having to do, but you, it's hard some, to like move on. To, to like, you know, the eventual goal. So I'm just kind of, kind of curious what you've, how you've thought about that in like kind of in terms of like mental health, like the ways that that kind of can really impact just your life in general. Yeah. There's a lot there. Uh, I realize that. No, I, I, know, I, I understand. I understand that. I understand that. No. And I, and that's a very fantastic question. You know, that's people that are that people that are currently in that adjunct grind uh, struggle with, you know, and at, and there were, there was a point in my life, um, you know, I won't specify which, because I don't want to speak bad of anybody that I've worked with because they've all been, um, you know, they've all been wonderful in, Mm. in different ways. There was a time where I felt like I was grant, where I was grinding. I felt like I was kind of like spinning my wheels and everything. And then, you know, a couple, a couple, uh, you know, a couple things happened, you know, and some of them were just epiphanies that happened on their own. And some of them were just like, just what happened. So, so the first thing that happened was, is that my, uh, my grandmother's house in West Virginia burned to the ground. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, she and her, her daughter, my aunt, uh, made it out safely. The cats made it out safely. Uh, but everything was gone, you know, and seeing, you know, seeing that happen really put a lot of things in perspective in terms of like, you know, she, she kind of, uh, you know, she, well, not, not, she kind of, she did lose everything, you know, except for like the clothes on their back, you know, and their car keys and everything. And, um, and so, you know, they, uh, they start, we started to go fund me and the community came together, you know, when they reached their goal and everything, um, you know, we, the GoFundMe campaign, my grandmother, um, through, the GoFundMe campaign kind of released a statement, which is like, you know, thanking everybody for all the donations and everything. And she said that like, you know, I wanted to impart like three pieces of advice, you know, that, um, or I can't remember if it's three or four, but it was really important advice about, you know, things that she learned while living on this farm in West Virginia, you know, in this, in this, and living in this house that is now no more. You know, and the pieces of advice that she gave was that the first is that you have to have enough sense to know when you are okay. And then the second thing is, um, know the difference between a crisis and an inconvenience. The third is what you want and what you need may not be the same thing, you know, and the fourth thing is never give up on your dreams. So that was, that really had a profound impact on me, you know, cause when I was talking about earlier about all of these, um, all of these 
you know, traditions of going to West Virginia for Thanksgiving, you know, we would have Thanksgiving at that house yeah. and now that house is gone. Yeah. Um, and so that, so that happened. And then, you know, I was, you know, for a, for a number of years, you know, I had been like obsessing over, it has to be the tenure track job. It has to be the tenure track job, you know, and everything. And what happened to, what happened was that I got so anxious about it and so worried about it and so obsessive over that, that what happened was, is that I, I was, I was, I was thinking myself into a pit mm. and what ended up happening was, and it's actually amazing when you think about it, is that my, my human body survival instincts kicked in and basically said, don't worry about it anymore. You lose it. It was either, um, you know, continue to worry about this or don't actually, no, that wasn't even a choice. You're either not going to worry about this or you're not going to worry about it. It's like, it's like, I worried so much about, Oh gosh, am I, am I going to get the job? Is you know, full-time job, full-time job, full-time job, full-time job, full-time job, full-time job. Or, you know, and, but I had worn myself out through worrying. It's like, I worried so much that I couldn't worry anymore. And so I just, so like my instincts kicked in. I just said, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen, you know? And that was, uh, that was really a big thing for me. And then I, and then I had this other epiphany, which was that, look, being an adjunct person is, is difficult. I'm not discounting that at all. Um, you know, but I remember when I had like an adjunct position and then there was a full-time position that was advertised. And all of a sudden I just started thinking, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy at this full-time position. I'm actually happier at this adjunct position that I have more than this full-time position, you know? And then I just said, I just said to myself and it just came, just came to me. And I just said, you know, if I'm going to work full time, if I, if the, if the goal is full time, I don't, you know, for my own personal happiness, you know, it doesn't need to be in college percussion. If, if full, t- if full time with benefits, you know, with retirement 401k and everything is important, then I'll go get it in another, in another field. You know, I don't need to jump through all these hoops just to get a full-time job that I'm going to be miserable at, you know, and everything. So, so I guess the, um, you know, so I, I completely understand what they, what, you know, those, those feelings, because I've had them before. And so what I will say to that, you know, first of all, be honest with yourself, know what you can or can't do. Um, Second is that you have to take pride in that adjunct job. You know, this isn't, you know, the, you know, the students, you know, the, those students have, you know, deserve a teacher that is just as much committed to them as a full-time, as a full-time, you know, professor would. Um, I remember uh, the at percussion podcast, you know, Mm -hmm. with uh, Casey and Ben and uh, you know, um, and Carly Vina and company, they uh, many, many episodes ago, they interviewed John Parks, Mm -hmm. you know, and that subject of, you know, the adjunct job or like, you know, how do you get to that full-time job and everything? And he's, and John, John uh, said that you have to treat the adjunct job like it's a full-time job mm-hmm. in terms of like the amount of commitment that you have, that you have in it. You know, in this business, you can't be a fair weather teacher. You have to have the same amount of tenacity and same amount of passion. And it doesn't matter whether you have, you know, 50 students or one student, you know, all of them deserve an education. Now, Unfortunately, you know, look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not blind. I know that there are only so many, you know, full-time positions out there, you know, and the, 
um, you know, the graduating class, you know, the number of people that have, that are graduating with DMAs is increasing over time, you know, but the thing is, is that we all end up at the place that we're supposed to be. And I've said that, I said that before earlier. So I, what I started doing was I started looking at, um, looking at it from the perspective of the reason that I, you know, like places I'd interviewed at, if I didn't get selected for it, it's because there were certain intangible qualities that they can't, that people can't advertise in positions, you know, or like the, because they, not because they don't want people to find out about it because they can't describe it, but like they know which people are a good fit and which people are not a good fit. And, you know, you want to talk about being stressful of, of not having a full-time job. Imagine being, imagine being in a full-time job. Imagine the stress of being, having a full-time job where you are a not qualified for it or B, uh, not a good fit for it or see a job that you hate, you know, and I'd much rather choose a path of happiness than, than full time. And, you know, uh, the, the Tim Fierst five years ago would have slapped me in the face for saying, for saying such blasphemy, but it's true, you know, and everything. And so that's kind of just something that we need to, you need to keep, you keep by, you know, I love what I'm, I love what I'm doing right now, you know, and that is, that is what it's about. It's about doing what you love doing, you know? And, you know, we talk about like, you know, carving out a life for yourself and have all these part-time gigs that kind of turn into a livable wage. Well, um, I'm no musicologist, but I seem to remember people like Mozart and Beethoven had multiple different jobs, you know, like they would compose for like the courts, they would have uh, students, you know, and so they had all these like different jobs, yeah. you know, they, and then they would perform and stuff like that. How is that, how is that any, how is that any uh, different from that? And I know it sounds like I am basically telling the people out there that are trying to get the full-time gig to toughen up. And I know that it's a lot, and I, and I fully recognize that it's a lot safe. It's a lot uh, easier for me to say that uh, because I'm in a, I'm in a position that I really like, but the thing is, is that, you know, happiness is a choice. It really is. When it boils down to it, it's a choice, you know, and you can have a bunch of obstacles that can, of course, make your life a lot more difficult to, uh, it can make it a lot more difficult for you to be happy. But um, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, choosing to be happy. So keep at it. And when the job that you are meant to have comes along, you will get it. it. Nobody else will get that job. If you didn't get that job, it was it wasn't meant for you, and there was a specific reason that you weren't meant to give that job, that you weren't meant to get that job. You know, and that's having that having witnessed that in my own life has given me a lot of comfort over the years. Yeah, that's that's well said. The one thing I wanted to ask uh, when you were talking about the anxiousness is. Mm-hmm. Because you 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 say epiphany, but I am actually wondering if are was there like physical ramifications for the anxiousness that started to creep in that you were also having to kind of maintain rather than it just be a mental issue. You know, stress stress a bunch of emotional and mental stress is not good is not good for the human body. It's just not. I was very fortunate that my that my brain kind of nipped it in the bud before it started affecting, you know, my, before it started affecting my physical health, I didn't have any nervous breakdowns or anything like that, but I was very fortunate that, um, 
that that kind of like my mental reconciliation with myself sort of happened before it took a major physical toll on my health and everything. And, you know, and having that relief, you know, having that relief come there was truly a liberating feeling. And of course I realized that part of that comes with maturity that comes with age, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older now and I'm a little bit wiser now. So I would just, um, so no, I didn't really have any physical ramifications or anything like that. Um, it was all 100% mental, but I do know that I bet I am fully aware about how having a lot of stress can take a toll, a, can take a physical toll on the human body. All right. We finish up with random ask questions. Okay. So first question is what's an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Can it be two? Sure. So the first one is uh, gender stereotypes when it comes to certain percussion instruments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just because, you know, somebody, you know, like, oh, only the females will play mallets and all the, you know, males will play drums and stuff like that. You know, that is, that's something that, um, you know, we have come a long, we have come a long way in, in breaking and breaking that stereotype. But that's just something that really gets under my skin is just like when there is um, when there are gender stereotypes or something like that. You know, you know, all people of all genders need to have that well-rounded, you know, need to have that well-rounded background. And then the second thing is that and and to be given the opportunity to develop. Oh, yes. 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 Of of course. I apologize if I didn't mention that or anything. So, yeah, be given the opportunity for that and everything. so that's the first thing. It's just we have to get rid of these gender stereotypes. Like we absolutely, we absolutely have to. Um, you know, we have, we have come, we have made progress, but we have to, but we have to, uh, we have to keep getting rid of them. The second thing is that we really have to reexamine how we tell our students to practice. Mm-hmm. We really have to exa- reexamine it because it's so much more than, you know, because take it slowly, take breaks have a plan, you know, it's just like, those are like, so, I mean, not that those pieces of advice aren't, aren't bad. They're, they're great pieces of advice, but we need to go one level deeper. So for instance, you know, let's assign rehearsal numbers to the pieces that we're, that we're, um, that we're doing. I mean, cause practicing is nothing more than a one person rehearsal when you think about it, you know, and, you know, you can tell them to, you know, practice it slowly, but how do you get from practicing slowly to that performance tempo? You know, um, Michael Rosen has like the, the penny, Mike Rosen had the, uh, the penny system where it's like, you have to get it perfect, you know, 10 pennies each time you do it correctly, you move the penny over, you know, and then if you make a mistake, then you have to go back and stuff like that. Um, very, very brutal practice, but it does get results. Um, you know, think, uh, so, you know, what I do is, you know, I always, you always start at a tempo that you can get the correct notes and the correct um, rhythms in. And then with the repetition, it's, um, it's when it feels comfortable to me. You know, some people feel, uh, it feels comfortable after like three reps. Some people, it feels comfortable to them after five reps or 10 reps. And of course, uh, what the piece is largely is largely dependent on that, you know, and it's, and I think that, when it, when you overcome that maximum stress of playing that section and you play it and you play it perfectly, like that's when you can increase that tempo, you know, cause that's what, you, that's what you're doing. Cause you know, 
you know, working with drum lines, it's that third, it's the third rep that you have to worry about. Cause the first rep, first good rep, you're like, okay, we got it. Second rep. Okay. We got it correct again. Ah, ah, this is fine. No, no worries. Third rep. And all of a sudden everything falls apart, you know? So for me, like I'm a third, I'm a third rep type person, but like, I always look for like comfortability and over and overcoming that stress, that stress, and then increase the tempo, you know, five beats per minute and just repeat that process you know, over and over again. Um, you know, one of the things that Tony taught me was that, you know, when you first are learning a piece, you know, go through it at zero tempo. So don't, don't, so you just don't take it out of tempo. You just learn the notes, you know, you don't move on to the next note until you know, absolutely, you know, what it is in it. And then, then as you're doing that, you kind of writing your sticking, you're like, Oh, this is going to be difficult. I'm going to bracket out those sections. And, um, you know, and also, you know, things like, do your newest, uh, do the newest material first because that's when your brain is the most, is the most fresh and everything. And I just think that, you know, those are kind of the conversations that we need to have with in percussion education and music education in general, uh, because we like to think, but it's not percussion, you know, practicing is not an instinctive skill. It's a learned skill. And so, until our, until our students know exactly how to practice, how to get from a, from point A to point B, we're going to have problems. It's, you know, here's another movie, here's another movie, um, example. So, um, the Santa Claus, the very first, the Santa Claus movie starring Tim Allen, Uh um, when he's in the North pole and they're showing him all these different new gadgets, like a new sleigh, you know, and, uh, fire resistant Santa suit. And he said, and he keeps saying, okay, what happens if I fall off a roof? So for those of you who don't know, that's how he became Santa Claus was that the old Santa Claus fell off of his, fell off of his roof and everything. It's a great movie. It's a holiday classic. Please check it out anyway. But that's kind of always the questions that I've had is that, you know, we get these very stock answers in how to practice music. And, and I just, I'm always like asking those, what happens if I fall off a roof? So what happened, you know, how do we get to that specific place? And I think that if we outline that, if we, we need to just update that. And once we update that, then we're going to have a lot more success because the truth is, is that all students with some exceptions want to do a good job. Nobody, even if regardless of whether music is their number one passion or they absolutely hate band and their parents are making it, nobody wants to be wrong because that is in, um, that's that cause that's uncomfortable. The second that we take those extra, extra steps and show an actual roadmap to getting to that performance tempo, I guarantee you that we will see a lot more people in the practice room because they will actually see a path forward that they can do and that will increase their intrinsic motivation. Great points. I, I had not, the where I went with the Santa Claus movie was uh, when he's like, when he goes to the doctor and he's like, you call this a little weight? You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good, that's a good, that's so. a good scene too. I love that movie. That That's a, that's a, that's a tradition in our household that we watch that we watch that, you know, we have like our Christmas movies, we have our rituals and everything. Yeah. Uh, the one that's really set in stone is that we watch a Christmas Carol, Christmas Eve, uh, the George C. Scott version, which is mm. the best version of a, of a Christmas Carol, you know, so better than Scrooge. You know, Scrooge is, um, I like Scrooge. Yeah. My dad likes Scrooge. Um, my mom doesn't really care for it cause it's, a, a, she finds it's a little bit too dark because yeah. it is kind of Tim Burton esque yeah, yeah. in a way. And so, um, but Scrooge is a, is a really, is a really good movie. Yeah. Bill Murray is, Bill Murray is a national treasure. Yeah. 
I, I that might be his best. I mean, he's so good in so many things. Like Groundhog Day is another like. He's, yeah, Groundhog Day, and Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of good ones. <laughs> Other questions not related to not related to percussion. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? I own an Iron Man mask. You know, and so, like, like it's it's an like an actual Iron Man helmet. Yeah, yeah. Know? I mean, it's not it's not like shiny or anything, but it's like, uh, you know, I don't have it with me or anything. It's like it's back home in Virginia, but um, but I, you know, I do I do um, you know, own I do own that because you know, see, I'm a big Iron Man fan, and I was into Iron Man before he was cool. <laughs> so this was reading the comic books, watching the animated series that was on in the nineties, which is on Disney plus, by the way, it hasn't aged well, but you know what? It's really cool. Like back before the Marvel cinematic universe, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kicked off and everything. And so, you know, I was all about, I was all about Iron Man growing up when nobody else was. So <laughs> it was great vindication when that movie came out. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was the, wasn't that the first one? In terms of not in terms of timeline, but in terms of like actual date that it came out, that was kind of oh, yeah. the, the beginning. Yeah, it was a really important movie because like before then, the Marvel movies were kind of in the wilderness a little bit. I mean, the Spider-Man movies were great, but then they were trying these like, uh, you know, movies like, uh, you know, the Blade movies, which are, you know, which I guess are OK, you know, and, you know, the X-Men, the X-Men movies are, are great, you know, um, except for X-Men 3. You know, X Men Three is really awful. But uh, if you watch Days of Future Past, if you watch Days of Future Past, then it completely forgives. You know, it forgives all of the sins that were committed in the previous X Men movies. So if you know, if you're going to watch the X Men movies, watch X Men One, Two. Like, play like a game on your phone while right. X Men Three is going on in the background. You know, then. You know, then watch the wolverine which is the one where he, it takes place in japan which is it's not the greatest movie but it's 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 a solid movie it's much better than the origins movie and then watch days of future past and then after that you are oh and actually watch uh, first class as well first class is great and after that you're done you know don't watch like apocalypse or you know or you know dark phoenix saga i haven't i haven't seen it but i i just i had no interest in see it or anything so because i'm not i'm more of an iron man nut than i am an x-men nut so okay fair enough has anyone nailed an impression of you and if so how'd they do it i haven't had that experience um personally um i do remember one time i was heading into heading into ut and i was wearing like jeans or something like that and somebody in the city said what no cargo shorts because i i was known for wearing like cargo shorts and like you know, and stuff and stuff like that. So I, I, nobody has ever nailed an nailed an impression of me. I guess if if they were, it would probably have to be with like my my clothing and my horrible jokes and my my own self perceived quick uh, quick wit and everything. <laughs> <laughs> These are great questions. Keep them coming. All right. <laughs> Do you have a sports fandom? Washington football team. Okay. Um, I am def. I am a. I am a Washington. I am a Washington fan. Um, you know, and I kind of started getting back into sports. Um, you know, and, and and monitoring them because my friends were uh, were also really heavily into sports. You know, and they were doing fantasy football and things like that. And you know, what great. And I was just like, I really want to socialize with these people, so I'm going to start. You know, uh, you know, reexamining sports and everything. So I, I'm I'm kind of a football fan. Okay. Um, especially especially with Washington. 
Uh, I've gone to a couple nationals games, you know, and I, I try my best to follow it, but like, I really only have the time for one sport and that is, um, and that is football. Um, you know, I like, you know, pro, I, I just pro football or pro in college, uh, pro football, but a little bit of, uh, college on the side, like mainly Texas mm-hmm. and of course, UTPB football as well. Uh, and I think we're, we're division two, I believe. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think that Washington is kind of in a good place. I like, uh, I like what Ron Rivera is doing. Um, you know, everybody thought it was a big shock that Ryan Fitzpatrick went to Washington, but I saw it coming a mile away. I'm glad that we didn't, I, I'm glad that we didn't blow everything on a, on a, on a quarterback, you know, or anything. Cause you know, we did that with Dwayne Haskins and that didn't exactly turn out that turn out that well. And I think that, you know, we have like pieces in place, you know, for a great team. And I think what they're doing is they're building the team and then they're going to go get the quarterback, which I think is, uh, which is a good way to do it. Um, you know, defense is insane. Um, Chase Young is a monster and Terry McLaurin wide receiver. Oh man. He's, he's, he's really good too. He's one of my favorite players on that team. Um, you know, so I would say mainly, uh, Washington football team or whatever the name is going to be in the spring. Well, and I, that's hilarious, though, because you're in a you're in Dallas country, and that oh, is I know. like you 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 understand that like that is their blood rival. <laughs> I I am fully I am fully aware of that. I am fully aware of that. I almost deferred my enrollment when I realized the demonstrative of my error and everything. But um, <laughs> no, it's uh, it, no, it's very it's very interesting. You know, I've I've talked with a couple of a uh, couple of Cowboys fans, and uh, one and one of them in particular was like, you know gosh, I don't know what's going on with, with Dallas and everything, you know, it's like they're, they're start and then they do some shenanigans, they do some shenanigans and everything. And they actually, they're like, I really want Washington to do well. So, you know, but yeah, I felt, yeah, being a, being a Washington fan in Cowboys country was interesting. Um, I got like the people would be watching football. I'd be like, Oh, is Washington playing? And I get like, these like daggers stared at me and everything. So it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty funny, but you know, we all, uh, we all hate the Giants and Eagles, so it's all good. Right, sure. <laughs> yeah, you can come together for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. 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 Yeah. Uh, so. That's hilarious. So I do usually ask what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, please ask me this question. Oh, okay, sure. What's a great movie? Yeah, please, please ask me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess like my great movie, I'll answer it with like, uh, you know, like my favorite movie of all time is National Treasure with Nicholas Cage. Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, it's a, um, you know, and I think that like when somebody says like, what's your favorite movie of all time? I believe that that answer should be like the movie that you have a bunch of sentimental connection, you know, to it and everything. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that it has a great soundtrack. Trevor Rabin of the band. Yes. Does an amazing job mm-hmm. with that, with that soundtrack. Um, you know, and I, you know, being from the DC area, I'm a, you know, I love, us history you know particularly from the colonial area and the colonial uh, era and just being able to witness that is great um and in terms of a movie that is bad well you know see i have um see i have a series of movies that i have some type of emotional connection to that i know they are bad but i can't help but like feel a little bit of nostalgia towards them and i hate myself a little bit for that uh one is uh batman and robin 
the joke. <laughs> well, because that was the first Batman movie that I ever saw in theaters. Was oh, Batman. boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, second is uh, Phantom Menace. You know, uh-huh. that was a, you know, although I will say that the Phantom Menace as a whole was poorly executed, but it had some great moments in it. The pod racing was awesome. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to credit that movie with really bringing lights, the lightsaber battling into the 21st, into the 21st century. I mean, having great Parker's Darth Maul and just all this like swirling around and everything. Um, yeah. uh, but like a movie that I absolutely think is, is terrible that I couldn't even finish was Napoleon Dynamite. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, everybody, everybody says it's great the second time around. And I just said, why would you want to watch it a second time? If you hated it the first time, you know, this is why I'm not a coffee drinker because coffee is an acquired taste, but I don't have the patience to acquire that taste. So, you know, <laughs> I hear yeah. you. All right. That's funny. Yeah. That's good. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Tokyo. I want to go to, to- I want to, go- I want to go to Tokyo. Um, you know, it's, they just got amazing, uh, scenery. Um, you know, they got like really cool, like technology a little bit, you know, I, I grew up as I was a, you know, um, you know, I grew up with anime mm. and everything. And, uh, you know, cause you know, when I was in high school, the people I would hang out with in school outside of the band people would be the anime people, you know, and they would tell me about it, like all of these, like, you know, cool shows and stuff like that. And also I'm a big, big video game nerd. Um, and like, I just think that it would just be really cool to, uh, to go to Tokyo. So Tokyo is at the top of my list. Um, and then close second would probably be Ireland, I think. So, um, or actually, no, uh, that's third. Second is, um, like Bora Bora or Fiji or something, someplace where like, I can do some like really amazing scuba diving with like, you know, like bull sharks and tiger sharks and stuff like that. Mm. So, cause I'm a certified scuba diver. So, Oh, nice. When did you, when did yeah. you do that? I, uh, I started diving and I, my first dive was in Barbados and that was in 2009. Um, and I became certified in 2011. Um, you know, I've dove, I dove Barbados once, dove Grand Cayman twice, uh, Turks and Caicos twice, uh, Pensacola once, which was an awful, awful dive, you know, big current. It's like the three things that you hate most about diving, which is like large current, uh, cold water, or four things, cold water, poor visibility and jellyfish everywhere. Um, <laughs> I uh, dove in uh, Jupiter, Florida, uh, during the summer for a couple for a couple weeks, um, and then also West Palm Beach. Um, but yeah, I really want to get to the South Pacific. It just really looks, um, it just really looks uh, just so beautiful out there and everything. So, um, yeah. so I'd say Tokyo is number one, and then uh, and then Fiji. But yeah, I'm a, I, I like being a certified scuba diver. Mm. I believe Megan, I believe Megan Arns is also a she does. scuba diver as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, so that's awesome. Are, are you a fan or, or at all interested in like the super deep, like the ones where they like they do it without the uh, without the equipment? Uh, oh, the, the free, free dive. I think they, is it called? Yeah, um, I like to breathe comfortably underwater, and fortunately, scuba dive scuba diving makes that a possibility. Um, See, so the deeper that you go, the less uh, the less time you have underwater because of the variations in pressure. You burn up more air. Um, the deeper, the deeper you are and everything. So, um, the one aspect of scuba diving that I absolutely will not do is, uh, any type of, uh, uh cave diving mm. because if those crevices get too get too small, like too small, like there have been stories of people that have gotten 
uh, killed because they got stuck, you know, in underwater cave like and and stuff. I think there are some places in Bon Air where they say, "Oh, you can." All right, the only way to get inside this cavern is if you completely ditch your gear, take a deep breath, and then dive on through. I'm like, screw that. I'm not doing that at all. <laughs> that is just a recipe for disaster because yeah. I don't want whether I live or die to be whether to be determined on whether or not I had a big breakfast or not, right, <laughs> or anything. So, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Favorite book? Rainbow Six by Tom Clancy. Okay. Any particular yeah, reason? Rainbow Six by Tom. So I grew up with the video games and my dad was, uh, my dad is a big uh, Tom Clancy fan. Like he has this bookcase of all of these Tom Clancy books and I just like the action in it. And I actually really do like Tom Clancy's writing, you know, while, while he was uh, alive and everything, which is that he really went the extra mile to kind of go into details like, Oh, this is not just a submachine gun. This is an H and K MP five submachine gun with 10 millimeter stuff, you know, and I like all the technical jargon in it. Although some people, some people say that's wordy, but I actually personally, uh, personally like it. And it's, you know, for those of you who don't know about rainbow six, it's a uh, top secret um, counterterrorism organization that's made up of the top special forces people in in all of the, in all of the world. And they are located in Hereford, um, England, where SAS is located. And it's, a about, um, it's about a, um, they are trying to, um, combat a bunch of, te- uh, like these recent, um, upscales and terrorist attacks. And it leads to a, I don't want to spoil it or anything, but it's like a major, um, major thing evolving, um, a mutated Ebola virus that people oh, are trying to, people are trying to unleash on the world in order to reduce the world's pop in order to completely eradicate the world's population for environmental purposes and everything. But it's, um, it shows, it hasn't aged all that well, just because of, you know, cause it was written in like the nineties and everything. And obviously the world has changed since then, but, uh, rainbow six, rainbow six is probably my favorite book. What's your favorite, um, Clancy movie adaptation? Is it you know, Red October? Because that's usually where you know, people go. It's it's up it's it's up there. It's up okay. there. But I do like I do like uh, Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger as well. Mm. Um, you know, and that and that was kind of the cool things about those movies was that and and to a certain extent also the um, the first Mission Impossible movie, which is that they were spy thrillers first and action movies second because mm-hmm. they you know you really had to pay attention to the to the dialogue and everything and so because of that. Um, you know, it's, it's about like the plot and everything. So I would say that, um, hunt for red, October, hunt for red October is really good. Um, and then after that would probably be clear and present danger and then Patriot games. I still need to see without remorse, which is based off a, off a Tom Clancy novel mm-hmm. as well. So I still need to see that. Um, the Jack Ryan series with, uh, John Krasinski's, uh, is really, is really good. Um, some of all fears is not that good though. Not, not, not in my opinion. Yeah. I, I can't take Ben Affleck seriously because the first time I saw him in a movie was uh, Armageddon. So, and after that, I, I just can't really take him seriously. Although he was, he, although in my opinion, he was great as Batman. Though he was, he was, he was good. He was great as Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a. It's a funny. The the, the, the it's a weird Ben Ben Affleck related thing because I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but I just rewatched <laughs> um, Bo, uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I had a feeling you were going to go to Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, there's a, there's a good bit of that that also has an age, but there's a whole lot of stuff. There's all the, all the in jokes about their careers 
that get mm-hmm. thrown on like him and Matt Damon in particular and that movie are still hilarious. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, they just came out with a with a new Jay and Silent Bob as well and I think it's on Amazon Prime. I think all of all, I think all of Kevin Smith's movies or like a good chunk of them like uh, are on uh, are on Amazon Prime. I know Mallrats is on there. Um Jane Silent I think Jane and I'm like if Mallrats is on there then you got to have Jane Silent Bob strike back and yeah. um the James James Silent Bob reboot. There's also a movie that I came across. I haven't seen, I haven't seen James Silent Bob Strike Back in a long time, and I haven't gotten them into Mallrats yet lately yet, um, or the reboot. But I know that there's this movie that stars Jason Mewes and also has Kevin Smith, where Jason Mewes plays himself and he's trying to like get more serious roles or something like that. It was a recent movie that had come out like hmm. two years ago, I think. So, okay. yeah, that's 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 on my watch list. So that and everything. So it's. Yeah. Yeah. Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, what is a non music related goal that you still have for your life? I want to get my pilot's license. Oh, okay. Um, being the son of an engineer and somebody that also really likes uh, aerospace and aviation, I just really love um, airplane flying. Mm. Um, you know, I you know, my, one of the things that my dad and I would periodically do, especially during the semester breaks when I would go home. Cause like, you know, I do have some family in San Antonio, but my main family is still in Virginia Yeah, is, uh, we would go to, uh, we would go to Dulles, Washington Dulles mm. and just plane spot. And what's really cool is that like, that's the international airport for the DC area. You mm. know? Uh, and so you get to see like all these big 787 Dreamliners, these triple sevens, um, you know, occasionally you might see an A380, or an A3, you know, and also an A350 and stuff like that. And, you know, we watch them land and then we like look up on the, you know, the, the, um, you know, the flight board and everything to find out where the, those planes came from. And I, you know, I always had like a, um, like a fascination with it. I just think it would be really cool to be able to like fly, you know, at least like a Cessna or something like that. Um, you know, and that, that's kind of, one of the goals that I haven't, that I want is I want to, um, I want to get my pilot's license. Cool. Have you taken any flying lessons yet? I have not. It's, it can get very expensive very quickly. So <clears throat> now that uh, Microsoft flight simulator is out on Xbox series X, um, I am going to, I'm going to wait until, um, an actual yoke that an actual, like, um, you know, yoke, like an actual, and rather than a joystick, oh, but sure, actual yeah. like pilot, pilot's wheel or yoke or yeah. anything comes out. Um, and then I'm going to get, and then I'm going to give it a try. And if I, and if I really like it, then, then I'm going to, then I'm going to go for it because it can get, it can get really expensive really quickly. That's like the big thing that I've, uh, that, um, I've learned about when, cause my dad has this pilot, has this pilot's license as well. So pilot's license, I just would love to fly. Cool. Either the strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. I guess this is like, just speaks to like my very good luck knock on wood, Mm -hmm. um, that I haven't really had many, um, many weird things happen, you know, in performances. Um, I will say that there was a, um, a matinee show, uh, cause I did Sweeney Todd when I was at the university of Utah, I did Sweeney Todd for, um, the pioneer theater company, which is this professional theater theater on the university of Utah campus. And they bring in, you know, people from Broadway off Broadway, you know, LA and everything to do these shows and everything. And I remember during this, um, it was this, it was kind of that Sunday, you know, preview show, you know, where it's an actual show, but it's not like the first official show. 
Yeah, and I was using a mallet cat for my, uh, for like for my chimes and for my timpani and everything. So what happened was is that I was supposed to do a chime solo, but I had the wrong setting on the mallet cat, and so what ended up happening was that it, it, you ended up getting these very high pitched timpani sounds, like dong 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 dong, and I'm just like, I'm just going with it, you know. Yeah, I'm just yeah. trying to switch, and all of a sudden like that. It was, I was just, I was about ready to die right there. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and it was the, the music direct, the conductor really took it in stride. And he said, did we have like a, so we had some type of malfunction there. And I was just like, yeah, sorry about that. So yeah, it was the malfunction was I didn't hit the right button. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's well, cause like you have to like write in those uh, things cause there wasn't a whole lot of space there. So I couldn't have like acoustic chimes or, yeah. You know, I only had like one drum there, one timpani there for the, for the timpani rolls and everything. Um, but like you have to write in those, uh, write in like those patches and everything. Yeah. And some of them are pretty, are very quick, you know, as it is with all musicals, but yeah. that was, uh, well, you know, it was kind of more of a, it was a 2001 space odyssey version <laughs> of Sweeney Todd, <laughs> Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd and the space, Sweeney Todd, a space odyssey. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sweeney Todd on the International Space Station. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I don't know how he would like hide all the bodies there because then they would just be like floating and everything. So That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right, last question, Tim. Uh, what one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything like that, uh, has impacted you the most recently? Wow, that is that is quite a question. There's this Norman Rockwell painting out there, and it is um, I think it's called the Freedom of Speech, and I think it's part of um, you know two. Um, I can't remember uh, if this is the actual name of the collection or not. That's uh, like American Canvases or something like that. Um, it was um, there's this piece that Mark Camphouse wrote called a uh, fan piece called uh, Two American Canvases. And um, the second one was uh, called Freedom of, Freedom of Speech. Um, and it was, um, and it's a very beautiful written piece. Mark Hamphouse writes such beautiful uh, band music. And what it is, it's a Norman Rockwell painting. And, and it's all of these, um, it's a kind of like a town hall type thing. And the person, and there's one person standing up and he has like a flannel shirt on and like a, jacket like definitely looks like kind of working class middle class while everybody else around him is a is a suit and everything and he's voicing his opinion and that ever since like pairing the music with that painting and i've always been kind of a norman rockwell uh norman rockwell fan uh one of my um my great-grandmother's cousin or somebody i had a distant uh, like a distant family relative uh, named Jack Woodson, who was um, who was also a painter as who was also an artist as well, and uh, he knew uh, Norman Rockwell, and you know just just the ability that like you know anybody can just stand up and just you know speak their speak their mind and just you know and voice it because clearly you know just the way that he's speaking like this is a very profound you know moment where you know this is somebody that people are not used to hearing about because, you know, I'm sure that back then, you know, people of higher classes were kind of like involved in politics, but here's somebody that is, is not in a suit and tie, but is, 
you know, but is, you know, speaking, speaking his mind, you know, and everything. And um, so it's called, I think it's called freedom of speech by Norman Rockwell. Um, You know, and that's, that's, that's always had a profound uh, impact on me. Okay, Tim, we're done. Woo. That was fun. Oh, glad you liked it. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's, uh, it's great what you do. Um, Please keep it going. It's really is, um, really it contributes so much to our crafts and 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 also it's just downright fun so i so please keep it going we need it (laughs) i appreciate hearing that thank you what a lot of fun that was getting to chat with tim over these past couple of episodes i wish him the best of luck in his turn as both percussion instructor and director of bands, and I hope that we get the chance to catch up in person very soon. As promised, this week's rave is a recap of my experience at the 2021 Roots and Blues Festival in Columbia, Missouri. I've talked about this event in the past on the show, and it was great to have this back in person outdoors during a lovely recent weekend. A big theme of this year's event was three days of all women-led acts. This made for both a special occasion and showcased a lot of great folks I was not aware of and who may have been kept out of lineups more recently. And I'll lead up into the bigger name acts. On Saturday, I was able to start with an artist named Liza Ann, who I guess I'd relate to as an indie rock style act with a bit of Alanis Morissette and Andy DeFranco vibe about her. She had a great rapport with the audience and her band, and constantly referred to her feet being in shoes too small, which she ended up taking off right at the end of one of her selections. Overall, I really enjoyed her vibe and her sound. I moved next to Brittany Spencer, who was one of the many African-American women acts on the show. She was tremendous. Great voice, great folksy feel, great guitar playing, a really good band, and someone who I hope we'll hear a lot more about in the future. I should also add, great range. Really great. Next up was Mickey Guyton, best known more recently for her song Black Like Me, which was written during the 2020 protests. She's a professional country musician all the way had a great vibe and spirit about her, and a great backing band. She was very polished, really in the Nashville country star vibe, more so than anyone I heard all weekend. A very enjoyable, great sounding set. It was weird though, because she has a great drum set player, and a woman who for some reason she just didn't name. It was very odd, but again, overall... Really good experience. And while I enjoyed that, one other act was performing on the other stage, and I had to run and catch them, and that was Tank and the Bangas. And that crowd was packed for good reason. I thought it was the best show of the weekend. Their mood was definitely in the Parliament Funkadelic crossed with trombone shorty feel. They were amazing, great rapport, Really funny and charismatic, 
I look forward to catching their entire act at some point soon. For Saturday night's closer, this was the act I was most interested in seeing out of all of them, Brandy Carlisle. Her band, and I use that in quotes here, were twin brothers who played guitar and sang harmony with her. And she was as good as advertised. At some point, she brought on Britney Spencer and Natalie Hemby to perform some high women stuff. But the focus was on her solo music. She is a comfortable, easygoing live performer whose voice I really connect with. It's incredibly rangy and powerful, and she has remarkable vocal control. And it was as good as I had hoped it was going to be. On Sunday, the final day, I got to catch two performers, Mavis Staples and the closer, Cheryl Crow. Mavis was on first, and she was fantastic. She focused on her staple singer tunes, did some originals, did a lot of covers, and really provided just a nice blues basis throughout. Another person who had great rapport with her band and the crowd, and really just stands out because of her very unique voice. This range that is in an alto and baritone range, and her high screamy part is really just in the middle. It is very distinct and memorable, and it was a solid, really good set. And finally, Cheryl Crow. You know, comparatively, she's a good singer and performer. Not as good as some of the other people. But what is most memorable is just the sheer amount of hit music she wrote in the first 10 years of her career. I really forgot how many good tunes she has. I'm particularly partial to her cover of First Cut is the Deepest, along with her originals My Favorite Mistake and If It Makes You Happy. But there's also so many more, and she can still really connect with the audience. It was a really good festival, as it's always been, and it definitely did not disappoint. So thank you, Roots and Blues. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.